You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, An Anchor for the Soul. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields. We're glad you're here this morning. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews in your New Testament to study the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter here at Whitefields. So it really helps if you have a Bible to follow along with and study along with us. So we are studying currently on Sunday mornings the book of Hebrews. It's one of the greatest books in the whole Bible. And one of the things that's so great about it is that it ties together the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it shows us how the whole Bible is all about Jesus. And today we actually come to a very important turning point in this letter where the letter now transitions from telling us about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done to what you might call application or exhortation to telling us what this means for us practically and how we ought to rightly respond to these truths. So it's an exciting part of the book. Let's begin by reading our text this morning. We'll read part of it, verses 1 through 4, and then the end of the section here, starting in verse 19. So Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered each year, make perfect those who are drawing near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and let our bodies be washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see that day drawing near. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask that as we study it this morning, as we consider it, Lord, that you would use it in our lives, Lord. Use it to shape our hearts, use it to shape our minds, use it to do a transformative work in us. Lord, we ask that today in your word we would see your glory, we would see your goodness, and Lord, that it would cause us to rejoice and praise you and worship you more, and that it would have practical implications for our lives. Lord, we pray that as we study your word, you would do a work of changing us and shaping us into the people you desire us to be. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's been said that if there were two men who have done more to shape the American psyche and the American culture than anyone else, here's who they would be. A man named Roger Williams and another man named Henry David Thoreau. So let's talk about these two men. The first is Roger Williams. Roger Williams was the founder of the colony of Rhode Island. And he moved from England to Boston in the 1600s, and he moved there to be part of a Puritan colony in their, what is now Massachusetts. And the Puritans' goal, of course, was to create a pure church. Their goal was to have a pure church which was pure from, uh, free from politics, free from corruption, free from compromise. And Roger Williams loved this idea. And so he packed up where he lived in England, and he moved to the new colonies in the Americas, to Boston. But after a while, he noticed something. He noticed some things there in the church 
that he didn't like. Stuff like how they did baptism and how the church was run. And there were other things theologically that he didn't disagree with. So you know what he did? He left and he moved down south of Boston and he established his own colony. And he called it Providence, Rhode Island. He named it Providence. And that is now the town of Providence, Rhode Island. But then here's what happened with Roger Williams that's interesting. After a while, he found some things that he didn't like about this new church. The church that he himself had started. He found some things that he didn't like about it. There were some people doing some stuff that he didn't like. And so, again, he left. He left the very church that he himself had started and been the pastor of. And so he left that church and he moved to another place. And he established another church not very far away from there. And then, after a while, he didn't like things there either, so he left that church too. In fact, he did this multiple times. And every church he started, he eventually left because he found things about it that he didn't like. It never completely ended up working out for him relationally with other people or whatever. He, it said he just felt this isn't right, it isn't good enough. And so, at the end of the whole thing, Roger Williams ended up alone. Still holding on to faith, having a personal faith, you could say, but completely withdrawn and separated from Christian community. Now, the second person who shaped American culture in a great way was Henry David Thoreau. He was an American naturalist and writer, and he famously is the one who told us to march to the beat of your own drum. He lived in a hut next to a pond called Walden Pond, and he would write about going for walks in the, in the forest alone. That was his big thing, alone, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. And he expressed a very powerful theme for Americans, and that is that as Americans, we take care of ourselves, we work for ourselves, we answer to ourselves, and when it comes to church, if we do that, we do that for ourselves too. So Thoreau shaped American culture by putting self at the heart of the American psyche. Now, his biographer wrote about him, and here's what he said. He said, Henry David Thoreau stands as the most powerful example of the American mentality of self-trust, self-reverence, and self-reliance. But here's the thing about Henry David Thoreau. If you look at his life, you do not find a happy person. You find a person who tried as hard as he could to be self-reliant, but he wasn't a happy person. He struggled to engage in long-term, meaningful relationships. And at the end of his life, he had no friends, he was estranged from his family, and he was alone. And so these two things, the rugged individualism of Thoreau, plus the personal religion of Roger Williams, very much shapes American culture to this day. But here's the thing that I want you to see in all of this. Our culture is selling us short. In these ways especially, our culture is absolutely selling us short, and God has something much better for us. See, our culture, because of this self-reliance, because of this focus on self, it is plagued by many things, including a, a culture of overwork. It's plagued by a culture of loneliness, and it's plagued by a culture of depression. The New York Times published an article a few years back about how these three things, this unholy triad, right, of loneliness, depression, and overwork, that they are linked together, they are interrelated, and that they are an epidemic in our society. In fact, they even went on to say that they believe that they're contagious, that we pass it around to each other, that we encourage it in each other. And I just want you to know that as we read in our scripture today, God has something better for us. He has what the scripture here calls a new and living way, a different way to live, a different way to be human. 
The title of today's message is A New and Living Way. And in this section, we're going to look at how the good news of Jesus Christ speaks uniquely to each of these three areas and how Jesus gives us a new and living way. So we're first going to look at the gospel for the self-reliant. That's going to be the majority of what we talk about today. The gospel for the self-reliant. Then we're going to talk about the gospel for the hopeless. And finally, the gospel for the lonely. So the gospel for the self-reliant. Let's talk about this. You know, they say that one of the marks of a good teacher is that they repeat themselves a lot. Let me say that again. One of the marks of a good teacher is that they repeat themselves a lot. In fact, here in chapter 10, that's exactly what we see. If you're starting to feel like this is getting a bit repetitive, you're absolutely right. It is getting a bit repetitive, but it's by design. Right here in chapter 10, this is kind of the last time that he's going to summarize. He's going to kind of take an overview of everything that he's taught us this far in nine and a half chapters. And he's going to say, okay, I want to give you an overview. Let me just give you a rundown of what we've talked about so far. And then, starting in verse 19, he's going to make a shift from instruction to exhortation. He's going to go from talking about who Jesus is and what Jesus did to talking about what that means for us and what we ought to do as a result of that. So the first thing he mentions in verse 1 is that the law... The Old Testament religion of moral performance and ritual cleansing. These things, he says, they were merely shadows. They were pictures of who Jesus would be and what Jesus would do. But the substance, Jesus himself, he is the substance that all of those things pointed to. And so he's basically saying this. You would be out of your mind to choose a shadow when you could have the substance. Like if you went out shopping for a house, would you rather buy a house or the shadow of a house? If you went out shopping for a car, would you rather have a car or a picture of a car? Like imagine if you meet up with your friends later and they're like, hey, so did you buy that car? We want to see it. And you're like, yeah, I totally did. And you pull out this framed photo of a car. Now, frame photos of cars are cool, but they would be like, wow, that car looks awesome. So where's it at? Take us for a ride. And you'll be like, well... We can't actually ride in it because it's an 8 by 10 photograph. Like, we can't ride in this. But I just bought this picture, and it's pretty sweet, though, right? And they'd be like, well, yeah, it's a nice picture, but how are you going to get to work? Like, how are you going to go anywhere? You can't, that picture can't actually do anything for you except give you something to look at, which points you to something that is real, but the picture isn't the real thing itself. You see, that's what pictures and shadows do. They can't actually do anything for you, really. All they can do is point you to the real thing, point you to the substance which they are an image of. And so let's ask the question, what was the Old Testament law and the Old Testament religion, what was it a picture of? What was it a shadow of? He tells us in verse 3, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins, a reminder of sins every year. So for these people, every time they would go and they would have to perform a ritual for purification and cleansing and atoning for their sins, this would be a reminder to them of a very important truth, which all of us need to understand, and that is this, that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. So the rituals pointed to a problem. They pointed to a need that we all have. The problem is that we are broken people. And our need is that we would be cleansed and forgiven and restored to relationship with God. And the writer's pointing out this. The very fact that these sacrifices had to be repeated over and over ad infinitum, that that shows that they didn't solve the problem. They didn't meet the need. They were only pictures of, they were foreshadowings 
that pointed us to the problem, but also pointed us to what the solution would be that would one day come. As these animals were sacrificed for the sins of the people, it was a picture of how Jesus would one day come and he would be sacrificed for our sins. As these animals were innocent and yet they suffered and died for the sins of other people, so Jesus would suffer and die for us, the innocent for the guilty, in order that our sins might be forgiven so that we could be made right with God. You see, to a self-reliant culture like our own, which says, trust in yourself, believe in yourself, God says, well, it's actually a little more complicated than that. It's a little bit more complicated than that. And here's what's complicated about it. There are some things which you cannot do for yourself. There are some things which you are completely incapable of doing for yourself, including meeting your own basic needs. You are completely incapable of meeting your own even most basic needs. Notice what it says here in verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What this is saying is we have a problem and we are completely incapable of fixing it on our own. We have a need and we are completely unable to meet this need on our own. We are in absolute dire straits and there's nothing we can do to fix the problem in and of ourselves. To fix this problem requires an act of God. And the good news of the gospel is that God has indeed acted on your behalf in Christ because he loves you. And the question is this, will you receive that gift that he's offering to you? Will you embrace Jesus as your savior? Will you embrace by faith what he did for you? To do that though, understand it requires you to renounce your self-reliance. Any thought that you might have had of self-trust, self-reliance, you have to lay it down. You have to let go of it. You have to acknowledge that you are dependent on God and hand over the reins of your life to him. So as I mentioned earlier, Henry David Thoreau, he embodied this philosophy of self-trust, self-reverence, self-reliance, which has become so pervasive in our culture. But if you look at where that philosophy got him in his life, again, he ended his life miserable and alone. No one wants that. What this text is showing us and what the whole Bible wants us to see is that the idea of self-reliance is actually an illusion, right? The, the whole idea of self-reliance is an absolute illusion. Every breath that you take, every time your heart beats, you have absolutely no control over it. You are 100% dependent on God every moment of every day of your life. You are more dependent on God than a little baby is dependent on their parents. To the person who says, on the other hand, you know, well, well, I'm a self-made person. You know, well, maybe God keeps me alive, but everything else is all me, right? Like, I got myself where I am today. I worked for it with my two hands, with no help from anybody else. I made good decisions. I pulled myself up. I got myself to where I'm at. Now, that may be true, that you worked hard and you made decisions, but was it really all just up to you? I mean, who gave you those two hands that you worked with? Who gave you that mind that you made decisions with? Who sustained your life so that you would even be alive the next day to make another decision and do anything? How different would your life have been, for example, if you were born on a mountaintop in Nepal or in a slum in India, if you hadn't had the opportunities that you had by God's divine providence? You see, in reality, very much of who you are and what you become is based on things which are completely outside of your control. So the idea of self-trust and self-reliance is actually quite naive when we really think about it. 
Not only can we not live a single moment without God, neither are we even able to meet our own very basic needs. And when it comes to the spiritual side of things, we are not able to meet our, our basic spiritual needs, our very deep spiritual needs. Look what it says in verses 5 through 7. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now this might sound to you like, okay, typical Bible stuff, right? Just kind of general Bible versey stuff. Let me explain to you what this passage is saying and why it's actually very incredible. This is a quote from Psalm 40. This is Psalm 40, verses 6, 7, and 8. He's quoting from there. Maybe if you turn over to Psalm 40, you'll notice some differences. The reason for that is because he's quoting from his Bible, which is a Greek Septuagint version of the, version of the Old Testament. So that, anyway, if you notice any discrepancies, but that's why. But this is a quote from Psalm 40. Psalm 40 was written about 1,000 years before Jesus was born. 1,000 years before Jesus was born. And yet Psalm 40 is talking about Jesus. And what the writer is doing here is he's, he's lifting our eyes to see beyond our present day and our situation. He wants to take us back to a time before Jesus was born as a baby in Bethlehem. Did you know that Jesus existed before he was born as a baby in Bethlehem? Because not only is Jesus the Son of God, he's also God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And as God, Jesus has existed from eternity past. And so the writer is wanting to show us, hey, before Jesus came, before he was born in the body, there was a time when God the Son, Jesus, he, he approached his Father and God had a plan for your redemption before you were ever created. He takes us back to this moment, way back when, when the Son came and presented himself to the Father and said, you have prepared a body for me, a physical body. You have prepared a body for me. And then he said, I will do your will. In other words, he said, I will do whatever it takes, this plan of redemption, I will I will take on that body that you have created for me and I will go and do your will to bring redemption to the world and salvation. And he says, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. You know what that means? That's exactly what we're talking about a lot here at Whitefields when we talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's what our Christocentricity class for our school of ministry is all about. About how the whole Bible is a story which is about Jesus. And it's about God's plan from eternity past to save us through him. So verses 8 and 9, we go on. Verses 8 and 9 remind us of all the things that came before Jesus. Again, they were for the purpose of pointing to him. They were for the purpose of preparing people for him and what he would do. But now that he has come... He is the substance, and everything else was just shadows and pictures. And now that substance has replaced the shadows. In verse 10, he says the implication of this is that Jesus, by his sacrifice, we are sanctified by his sacrifice once and for all. You see, he says then in verse 11, this old system, this old system of sacrifices and ritual cleansing that had to be offered all the time, over and over and over with no end. He says that there was no end to it. He says in verse 11, the priests would stand every day for their service in the tabernacle later on the temple. They would stand and they would make sacrifice. And he says though in verse 12, he says, but Jesus 
has a completely different posture. Whereas the priest would stand every day and make sacrifices continually. It says that Jesus made one sacrifice once and for all time, his own life, and then he sat down. Did you catch that, that difference in posture? In the old system, the priest would stand daily, all day, every day. They would offer endless sacrifices. And it says in verse 11, sacrifices which, by the way, can never take away sins. See, if you would have gone into the Jewish temple, you would have seen all kinds of artifacts made of gold. You would have seen ornate curtains. But the one thing you wouldn't have seen anywhere was chairs. There were no chairs in the temple. You see, the temple was a place of work. It was not a place of rest. In the temple, there was nowhere to sit down and, and take a load off. See, the priests would stand daily. They would offer these sacrifices. They could never sit down because their work was never done. If you were in the temple, it was to do work to make yourself acceptable to God. But then Jesus comes, and he makes one sacrifice that actually does take away sins, the sacrifice of his own life. And it's the last sacrifice. It's the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He makes that sacrifice, and then he sits down. He sits down because his work is finished. There's nothing more to do. There's nothing that needs to be added to it. It's complete. It's done. That's why Jesus said as he hung on the cross, it is finished. Everything that was needed in order for you to be saved, in order for you to be forgiven and redeemed and reconciled to God, he did it. It's done. You don't need to add to it. You couldn't add to it if you tried. You just need to receive it as a gift by faith. Look at what it says in verse 13. And now... He waits. He waits for that time when his enemies will be made his footstool. What that means is there's a time that's coming. Bethany mentioned it this morning. There's a time that is coming when everything will be brought to fulfillment. The things which we only have pictures of now, images, shadows, foreshadowings, tastes. There's a time coming when it will be brought to fulfillment. When the kingdom of God will come in fullness and things will be right. The way that we all know deep down inside that they should be, that they ought to be. That day is coming, but it has not come yet. We still deal with evil and pain and suffering in this life. But the day is coming when the kingdom of God will come in fullness. And maybe you wonder, well then why does God wait? Why would he put that off? Why not just now? Like I want that now. Why can't it be now? The reason God waits it's because there are still more people that he wants to redeem. There are still more people that he wants to bring into relationship with him. There are still more people who will embrace him by faith and receive the gift of salvation. God isn't done saving people yet, that's why. You see, aren't you glad that he waited for you? I'm glad that he waited for me. But there are other people out there, and they're going to be glad that he waited for them too. And, and he wants to use you. You know that, that God wants to use you. He wants to use you to reach those people who will be his and bring them into the knowledge of him and faith in him. And what a privilege that is, by the way. What a privilege it is to be part of this grand mission of God in the world, this thing that he's been planning and doing from eternity past. We get to be part of that. We get to embrace that and live it out and be part of that mission. And so as we live in this world, Romans 8 encourages us. It says, Yes, in this world, before his kingdom comes, before he makes all of his enemies his footstool and, and the, the kingdom of God reigns, he said, yeah, there are sufferings in this present age. But here's what he says. The sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. 
In other words, we look forward to that day when God's kingdom will come in fullness. And yet, we live our lives now with excitement and expectation because we get to be part of his mission. We get to be hand in hand with him doing his business in the world. That's exciting. That's a privilege. Verse 14 reminds us that it was by a single offering that God has saved us. A single offering. The death of Jesus on the cross on your behalf. And what that means is that if you put your faith in Jesus, then all of your sins past, present, and future, have been dealt with. They've been dealt with. It's done. They've already been forgiven in Christ, which means that if you sin again tomorrow, Jesus already paid the price for that sin as well. Now, somebody might say at this point, well, look, hey, even if that's true, you probably shouldn't tell people that, right? Like, you probably might want to just keep that to yourself because people, if they hear that, they're going to be like, sweet, I can just go out and do whatever I want. And the author here, he says, exactly. Exactly. That's actually the point of the gospel. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then do whatever you want. Let me explain to you what I mean. He actually explains it here in our text. Verse 15 through 17. The writer reminds us of the new covenant. We talked about this again in weeks past. It's a new relationship with God that we can have because of Jesus This new way of relating to God is not on the basis of our performance. It's on the basis of what Jesus has done for us, what God has done for us in Christ. And then when you put your faith in him, he puts his spirit inside of you and begins to transform you to make you into a whole new person from the inside out. In other words, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and changes even your desires. Your desires. You begin to desire and and want different things than you wanted before because you're changing from the inside out. You begin to desire to know God and to please God. You begin to desire to do his will and to get rid of the things in your life that don't align with how he he desires for you to be and to live. The things which are holding you back in your pursuit of him. In other words, this is a completely different approach to God. It's a completely different way of approaching God. You don't approach him with resume in hand, saying, here are the things that I've done. Here's why you should accept me. Rather, you approach him hand in hand with Jesus on the basis of what Jesus has done for you. In other words, it's not just trying harder and doing more and trying to be better. You know, that's what a lot of people think that Christianity is about. That's the message. Try harder, do better. Now go on and come back when you've done better. The message of the gospel is this, that God changes you. He puts his spirit inside of you. He transforms you. He even changes your desires. And he does a work of changing you from the inside out. In verse 18, he reminds us, again, for the third time in just this chapter, that because of Jesus, no further sacrifice is needed in order to make us right with God. Now you can understand, you can try and understand now, why the author feels the need to repeat this so many times. It's not just because the mark of a good teacher is repetition. Let me say that again. Because the mark of a good teacher is repetition. No, the reason the writer had to repeat repeats it now is because of this. Because this would have been really hard for them to, to really wrap their minds around. Really hard for them to accept. They would have had a really tough time. You see, he has just deconstructed their religion over the last nine and a half chapters. He's broken the whole thing down. This is what they grew up with. This is their identity. And so even if they understand what he's saying in theory and they can say, okay, that makes sense in theory, 
they're going to be tempted to just continue making these sacrifices just in case, right? Or even maybe just because this is what they're comfortable with. This is what they know. It's what they're used to. It's what they've always done. And he has to keep repeating and saying, no more. No more sacrifices are needed. Now, I think a lot of us, we might look at that and we might say, yeah, I don't have a really hard time accepting that. You know, yeah, no sacrifice is good. Got it. Let's move on. But if you think about it, I want you to think about your life and the way that we in our culture tend to think about God. There are still a ton of ways in which we do things in an attempt to kind of twist God's arm a little bit, get him to do some things for us. Kind of a, and I'm telling you, these are kind of modern day versions of sacrifices. We're not actually killing animals. We're doing other things. Right? I don't know if you've ever done this one. Maybe it's just me. But uh, I'm guessing it's not, right? Sometimes people will, will try and kind of bargain with God. Like, let's make a deal in order to get him to do something that they want him to do, right? So say, God, look, I'll go to church every Sunday for a whole month, and I won't even go to the bathroom, like, during service. I'm going to sit through the whole thing. And if you, if you let this thing turn out my way, I'll do this thing for you, right? Like, I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back, we got a deal. Okay, God, like, uh, I've been super good lately, like, I read my Bible every day for the last month. I even read some super boring parts. And that's got to count for something, right? Like, uh, you know, since I know that you saw what I did, because you see all the stuff, right? Now I'm asking you, because of what I did, maybe you could do a little something for me, right? And, and again, this is the old, I scratch your back if you scratch my back type of thing. It's twisting God's arm a little. God's saying, saying or you might say, God, I'm sorry if you'll please forgive me for this one thing. I'll never do it again. I'll do anything you want me to do. I'm telling you, our form of sacrifice has changed, but the mentality is still the same. That we need to earn God's favor, that we need to twist God's arm by doing something. We're still trying to be, I want you to see, we're still trying to be self-reliant. And what this passage is trying to drill into our heads is this. Here's the good news. Jesus did it. That's the good news. He made the ultimate sacrifice. No other sacrifice is needed. And here's the thing. If this is true, and it is, then the implications of it are huge. Look at what he says starting in verse 19. This is where he takes his shift, his pivot, to where he's going to be talking about, okay, here's what Jesus did. Here's who Jesus was. Now to talking about how here's how we ought to respond as a result. He just spent nine and a half chapters deconstructing their entire religion, and now he's going to put it all back together, but show them that it's actually fulfilled in Jesus. And so he actually, if you'll notice in these verses, starting verse 19 to 22 especially, he uses the exact same verbiage that he used earlier in the chapter, but now he ties that verbiage, that language, that imagery to Jesus. So verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain which is his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. He says, here's what we should do, verse 22. Therefore, let us draw near to him with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. Here's what's important for you to remember. There are some things that only God can do. And there are some things which only you can do. There are some things which only God can do and there are also some things which only you can do. So, so far we've been talking about how the gospel for the self-reliant is this, that there are some things which you cannot do for yourself. You cannot save yourself. You cannot make yourself right with God. Ephesians chapter 2, it says that, the Bible says that our condition apart from God and his work in our lives is that we were dead spiritually. Like, I don't know if you've been around dead people, but they can't do a lot to help themselves. They can't comb their hair. They can't reach out. They can't sit up. You know, they can't do anything. And the Bible says, that was your condition apart from the work of God in your life. You were dead. 
but God acted in Christ to make you alive. There are some things that only God can do. But you need to know this too. There are some things that only you can do. What he says in verse 22. Because of all that God has done for you in Christ, here's how you should respond. Draw near to God. Let me tell you this. There's no one who can do that for you. You can't outsource that. You can't delegate that to somebody else to do on your behalf. That's a response to the gospel, what Jesus did for you. If you want to be motivated to do it, then look to him. Fix your eyes on him. But no one else can do it for you. No one else can open the Bible for you and seek God for you. You can't delegate that. You can't outsource it. No one can respond to the gospel for you. You have to do that for yourself. The Bible gives us an incredible promise. It says, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. God is ready to speak if you're ready to listen. If you will draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. That's a promise. If you show up for worship, if you open your Bible, if you speak to him in prayer, he will meet you in that place. So the question is this, will you draw near to him? This week, tomorrow morning, even during our last song now, or even even right now in this moment, will you draw near to him? If you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. And you can come to him, it says, with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with hearts that have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, knowing that you've been washed with pure water. That brings us to our last two points. Verse 23, he says, Let us therefore hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I mentioned earlier that there's this kind of unholy triad in our culture. Self-reliance, hopelessness, and loneliness. And they kind of are all focused that self-reliance leads to hopelessness. Self-reliance leads to loneliness. They're interrelated. Psychologists will tell you that one of the biggest determining factors which leads to suicide is a sense of hopelessness. They'll also tell you that in order for a person to experience happiness and joy, they need to have a sense of purpose in their life. But in order to have a sense of purpose, you have to have hope. You see, you have to believe that there is something out there that is worth living for. There's something that is bigger than you. There's something that actually matters. There is something which the future is actually going to be better than what you're experiencing right now. In December of 2012, maybe some of you remember what happened in Connecticut right before Christmas. There was a terrible shooting in a kindergarten. Terrible shooting in Newtown, Connecticut. Now, in that part of Connecticut... Uh, roughly 7% of people attend church of any kind. And yet the families, out of the 20 plus victims, every single one of those families decided to have a religious funeral. The president gave a eulogy, and that eulogy was actually more of a sermon than anything else. He quoted extensively from 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5, and he talked about how the Christian hope of eternal life is the only thing that can give us comfort in the face of suffering and loss in this life. Now, a few months after the shooting, there was a really interesting op-ed article published in the New York Times called, In Crisis, Humanists Seem Absent. In, in Crisis, Humanists Seem Absent. And the author of this article was pointing out that after the Newtown shooting, everyone who came along to give hope and comfort to the victims, they all did it from the perspective of the Christian hope of, of life beyond this because of what Jesus has done for us. And he concluded that, he said, where were all the humanists? Where were the atheists? They were talking about what might have caused this to happen, but they had absolutely nothing to say to give hope or comfort to people who were suffering. They can maybe try and diagnose what's wrong, but they have nothing to say to people who are suffering that can give them comfort and hope. And he said, this is what's actually unique about Christianity, that Christianity offers a real hope that goes beyond this life. This is the New York Times saying this. 
Because of what Jesus has done for us, we have hope that we need to, in order to live this life with real purpose and therefore to have true and lasting joy even in the face of the worst tragedies. Notice what the writer says in verse 23. The basis of our hope that he who has promised is faithful. And I'll tell you this, the reason that the hope we have is sure, the reason we can depend on it, the reason it's strong and unwavering is because our hope depends on what he did, not on what we do. That's important. Because here it tells us, hold fast to this hope, but know that ultimately he's holding fast to you. See, the thing is that even if you are unfaithful, the Bible says that he remains faithful. He can't deny himself. So you cling to him as hard as you can, but know this, that even if your grip falters, even if your faith wavers, he is holding on to you and he will not let you go. The Bible says this, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. And so we are secure in him because he is faithful. That is an anchor for our souls. And finally, the gospel for the lonely. He says in verse 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir each other up to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as that day draws near. These people who had grown up in Judaism, you know, they were being told that the sacrificial system had ended with Jesus. And they would have asked the question, well, if the sacrificial system ended, then that means there's no point in gathering together anymore. Because if we just have a personal relationship with Jesus, well, I can do that at home. I don't need to bother with messiness of relationships and community. If that sounds familiar to you, that's because that's how the majority of people in our society think today. Polls have actually shown that people believe that Christian community is not a vital part of a healthy spiritual life. It, they believe that it is one of these nice things to have, kind of like an add-on, like you could tack it on, but you don't need it. It's not considered essential to a, a healthy Christian life. The problem with that, though, is that God seems to think that it is, right? He seems to tell us that it is absolutely essential, that it's not an optional add-on, that it's not cursory, it's not supplemental, but it is vital, it's essential to our Christian health and vitality and being his people. Here's how Sinclair Ferguson puts it. He says, it's not that we are saved individually and then choose to join the church as if we're joining some kind of club or support group. But Christ died for his people, and we are saved when by faith we become part of the people for whom Christ died. So throughout the Bible, you can see how God is not just saving individuals, but he's creating a people, a new nation, a new community of those who are being redeemed. That's what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter where he says, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's own people. In other words, God is saving us out of individualism and bringing us into a community that he's building. Now, one of the results of self-reliance is that it leaves us lonely, and that's a big part of our culture here in Colorado. I can't tell you how often as a pastor I hear people say that even though they're surrounded by people, they're completely lonely. The message of the gospel is that God has saved us and made us part of his people, his community. When God talks about his community, he talks about it in terms of a body that has many parts, each with its own function. It speaks of unity and diversity and unique gifts working together. And here's what this all comes down to. You will never, you can never become who God intends for you to be apart from committed participation in Christian community. In verse 24, the writer of the Hebrews says, when you gather with other Christians, 
Here's what I want you to do. Consider how to stir each other up to love and good works. Now, I actually really like this passage because when you break it down, that word stir up, it literally means to use a stick, right? And that stick can also, this can also be translated to prod each other, right? Because imagine you're holding a stick. You could stir a pot with the stick or you could poke somebody or an animal with that stick to get them moving. And, and I like that because that idea of stirring a pot, prodding an animal, both of those things relate to not leaving people alone. Right, like kind of being a nuisance, right? Bothering them, stirring the pot. And, and I want you to think of it in this term. He's saying, gather together and think about how you can lovingly annoy each other so that you can help each other towards love and good works. In other words, uh, you know, I like to think that's, that's one of my, my primary skills in life is just uh, being annoying and getting people, you know, prodding and poking people. And I like the fact that the Bible tells me that I should do that. So I encourage you to do that as well. The point is this. Here's one of the benefits of Christian community. There are people who will not leave you alone. They will not leave you alone. Now you say, that's exactly what I'm afraid of. No, I'm telling you, it's what you need. It's what you need. There are going to be people who, if they don't see you around, they're going to be like, hey, what's going on? I haven't seen you around. You're going to have people who might challenge you on some things that you do or some opinions that you have. It might not be comfortable, but I want you to know this. It's so essential. It's so important. It's so needed. You will never be, you can never become who God intends for you to be apart from committed participation in Christian community. So when you come to church, when you come to community group, keep that in mind. How can God use you to stir other people up to love and good works? And he says, don't neglect gathering together as the people of God, as is the habit of some, but encourage each other all the more as that day draws near. In a culture like ours of overwork, loneliness, and hopelessness, the gospel speaks clearly that in Jesus we have a new and living way. And so, in conclusion, in light of what Jesus has done for us, draw near to God, hold fast to hope, and stir each other up to love and good work. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus. Lord, thank you that though we were dead, you have made us alive in him. And Lord, may we see that. May we see it clearly today. And Lord, may we respond to it wholeheartedly. Lord, during this song, may we draw near to you. Lord, throughout this week, may we draw near to you. May we hold fast to the hope that we have. Thank you, Lord, that you are holding fast to us. And Lord, help us that we would stir each other up to love and good works in you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 